humans will prefer even a conspiracy theory or a junk theory to no theory at all. We'd rather a comforting narrative than have to embrace the void. If anyone was ever going to make it back from the void, I suppose it was going to be you. Oh, well, you know, one man's void is another man's piece of cake. What about the reality we left behind? What about the reality where Hitler cured cancer, Morty? The answer is don't think about it. People assume that time is a strict progression of cause to effect, but actually, from a non-linear, non-subjective viewpoint, it's more like a big ball of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like they're people. Welcome, friends, to episode 212 of Embrace the Void, where everything is just the right amount of bad to keep you consuming reliably. I am your host, Aaron, and this week, we're back down the conspiracism rabbit holes, so let's find those hidden truths. Life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in... something. My guest this week is John Cook, a research fellow at Monash Climate Change Committee Research Hub, author of the book Cranky Uncle vs. Climate Change, and co-author of The Conspiracy Handbook. John, would you like to say hi to the void? Hey, it's great to talk to you. Great. Thanks for coming on. I really appreciate the handbook. I got to read it uh, this past semester in my post-truth education class, and it's one that I pass around quite a bit to folks as a useful sort of primer for people who you know want to deal with some of the current conspiracy situation without getting too far down the rabbit holes. So I appreciate you coming on to chat about this stuff some. Yeah, it's my pleasure. And it's it's actually really cool to hear that the conspiracy theory handbook is useful in those different situations. Like the whole point of us doing it was there was all this research uh, into mm-hmm. conspiratorial thinking, and we just wanted to make that more accessible to people. Yeah, and I think it definitely does clarify, you know, streamline some things that are consistent throughout. So we'll talk about that some. Let me let me ask you first, sort of what attracted you personally to misinformation and conspiracism as a field of research? Did you have a personal experience or were you just like very curious about why people come to believe what they believe? For me, the precipitating event was getting into arguments about climate change with my father-in-law. Mm. We would have these family mm-hmm. get-togethers and he would start throwing this misinformation at me. And at that time, I didn't really know that much about it, but it didn't mm-hmm. seem quite right. And so mm-hmm. I started um, reading, having a, a scientific background, I started reading papers about climate change and mm-hmm. and realised that his arguments held no water at all. They were, they were all false. Mm. And like any son-in-law... I was keen to beat my father-in-law in in the next argument. So I started uh, building a list. Uh, This is a very nerdy thing to do. But I started building a list of all the possible myths that I might hear and what was the relevant Mm -hmm. science to each one of those. And eventually I realized that other people might find this a useful resource as well. Uh, So I published Mm -hmm. a website um, debunking 
climate misinformation, skepticalscience.com. A couple of years uh-huh. into doing that, I got an email from a cognitive scientist who sent me some psychological research into how to debunk effectively or, or more mm-hmm. precisely, how not to debunk <laughs> effectively. Uh, and it was just, it was exploring in an experiment what happened if your debunking was not structured right and found mm-hmm. that uh, in, if it was done badly, there was the danger that you could actually reinforce the myth and make things worse. Mm-hmm. And to my mm-hmm. horror, I was doing it the bad way. And mm. so that really opened my eyes to the science of science communication. And that what were the bad whole... things that you were doing? Well, well I, that's what, what I worried. I worried, was I actually making things worse? The, yeah, I'm curious, time? were there like specific bad things that you were doing? Like, oh, were you being yeah, very yeah. mocking or something like that? No, it was, it was more how you structure the information. Um, mm-hmm. Often fact checks uh, put the emphasis on the myth rather than the... Um, the facts that they're using to debunk the myths. So the headline mm-hmm. will be the myth, then they'll repeat the myth, and then they'll get into a long, detailed um, fact check. And and often mm-hmm. the myth is is expressed very simply and concisely. And what that does is it makes people more familiar with the myth, and it also makes the myth very easy to process. Uh, mm-hmm. And those two things, familiarity and ease of processing, make things more believable. Whereas the mm-hmm. fact check is often very long and complicated and harder to process. Uh, and so what the researchers concluded was um, there was this danger of a familiarity backfire effect by making people more mm-hmm. familiar with the myth than the facts. The good news is a lot of researchers have tried to replicate the familiarity backfire effect since that initial study back, I think it was 2007, and really mm-hmm. struggled to replicate it. Uh, and so the decade and a half of research since then has really um, concluded that backfire effects are not as dangerous or prevalent as we thought they were from the early research. Uh, mm. And so some people have, res- uh, I guess, been shy of addressing misinformation because they're worried about backfires. Um, now the research is telling us that we shouldn't we shouldn't uh, let fear of a backfire effect stop us from engaging with misinformation the greater danger is to leave it unchallenged that's very interesting because some of the things that i wanted to ask you about had to do with approaches both from a journalistic perspective and from individual perspectives and I, i do think a lot of those discussions hinge on these concerns around these versions of the backfire effect but before we before we get to like solutions let's talk about the problem here a little bit more i think it might be worth sort of um unpacking what we're talking about when we're talking about conspiratorial thinking so one good thing about the handbook i think is that it lays out these kind of key features of conspiratorial thinking do you want to sort of talk about what you think are sort of the most essential of those key features for folks to be on the lookout for yeah happy to and uh, i don't have the handbook in front of me or any notes or anything Mm -hmm. but but the thing that I did in uh, in the handbook to make it easier for me and for anyone to remember them was just come up with a catchy acronym. Uh, in mm-hmm. this case, uh, we use the acronym CONSPIRE as a way to remember the seven traits of conspiratorial thinking. So CONSPIRE okay. stands for contradictory, overriding suspicion, nefarious intent, something must be wrong, 
persecuted victimhood immunity to evidence and reinterpreting randomness. And that's a lot. I mean, seven, seven traits, it's a, it's a lot to take yeah. in. Uh, probably mm-hmm. the, the key ones, I think, that are most um, important to be aware of is immunity to evidence. Mm-hmm. Conspiracy theorists treat any information that threatens their conspiracy theory with suspicion. They, um, mm-hmm. And I guess that comes back to the, some of the earlier traits. But that means that if you're trying to convince a conspiracy theorist that, that their conspiracy theory can't be true, uh, they tend to be immune to those arguments because they just distrust your sources mm-hmm. and your arguments. The other thing is... That's a tricky one, though, right? Because the conspiracy theorist is going to say everybody has that trait, right? That they would say that everyone's immune to evidence. Right, that we're all sort of resistant to evidence that doesn't sort of conform to our personal narrative. For sure, everyone is susceptible to confirmation bias. Um, mm-hmm. Like we all, to some degree... Uh, tend to put more weight on evidence that that is aligns with our existing beliefs, but with mm-hmm. conspiracy theorists, that um, that immunity to evidence, that suspicion, is much much mm-hmm. higher. They really, it's it's at a whole other level compared to just the average baseline amongst the general population. Right. And I think that is, to me, the key feature of y'all's diagnosis, which is it involves, and this is sort of the, the the capital C conspiracy part of conspiracy theory, is that it involves sort of a cabal of, like, evil people, right? People who are doing some, like, very nefarious shit for, you know, often unclear reasons, but, like, that that belief in a they, right, that is... Um, has a lot of power and nefarious goals seems to me to be sort of the danger, the really dangerous part of conspiratorial thinking because it sort of opens the door to belief in like anything, right? It allows the individual to kind of yes and every further thing because if these people are, you know, nefarious and, um, you know, maybe crazy and like uh, have a lot of power, then they, they could do anything at this point, it seems like. Yeah, once once you... Once a conspiracy theory, theorist starts demonizing people, mm-hmm. it does seem to be this rabbit hole they go down to. It, it, it seems unbelievable to me that people can think that some politicians and celebrities drink, you know, infant blood or, or do, do all mm-hmm. these insanely uh, extreme things. But um, it's this, and conspiracy theorists don't start from that point mm-hmm. but it, i guess once you start going down that road of distrust and then yeah leaving mm-hmm. evil intent um it's it's a, a rabbit hole that can take you further down yeah and i'm curious what your sort of intuitions are at this point based on what you've seen about like what are the driving motivations behind conspiracism what do you think there's a lot of different like competing hypotheses about sort of what drives conspiratorial thinking motivationally um and i'm curious what which ones you're sympathetic to yeah i think that there are a lot of competing hypotheses but i don't think there's any one driver i think that mm-hmm. people are complicated and you can have a different different factors um mm-hmm. and so like, for example one factor is a really fundamental basic thing which is when people feel anxious um when people feel kind of at the mercy of large events, particularly events that have been caused by random, a random sequence of events, mm-hmm. they um, they 
actually derive psychological comfort from trying to make sense of these and conspiracy theories can help people make sense of large, um, stressful, uh, random events. And a pandemic mm. fits that perfectly. Uh, a pandemic mm. is the result of just you know, random mutations and a random sequence of events where a virus from a bat got eaten by some other animal, which went to a wet market, which went to uh, transmitted to humans. Uh, and it's mm -hmm. this sort of randomness that makes us uncomfortable. We feel much more, um, uh, I guess, in control if if there was a plan behind it. Mm -hmm. And it seems counterintuitive. And why would we feel more comfortable with an evil plan? Um, and it's just a, a feature of human psychology that we prefer mm -hmm. order and meaning to right. randomness. I think often it connects to a just world view or a desire for a just world that like the conspiracy explains why a universe that should be just isn't currently being experienced justly. It's because someone is preventing that kind of just world from existing for their own benefit. Um, so it allows one to not just see an ordered universe, but like a fair universe where all of the current perceived unfairness is explained through the conspiracy. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's definitely can be an element mm -hmm. as well. Uh, as, as I said, yeah, I agree uh, with you that there are lots of different elements. There's lots of different ways that people come to this um, different sort of, and it's interesting to see the kind of overlaps politically where I think you see sort of very naturalness focused individuals from the left more and more meeting up with anti-government types from the right and finding kind of common ground on, in the areas of like bodily autonomy in relation to the COVID vaccine and such like that. Yeah, and politics is is another contributing mm -hmm. factor. One thing, mm -hmm. like my uh, research focus has been on climate denial and misinformation about climate change. And so for the last 10, 15 years, I've been studying why do people deny the scientific consensus on climate change? And politics mm -hmm. is a big driving factor behind that. But once you begin denying the climate consensus, then mm -hmm. uh, conspiracy theories are are inevitable. If you have mm. an overwhelming agreement amongst the world's scientific community and they all disagree with you, how do you explain that? Are all the scientists accidentally wrong in the same direction or mm -hmm. are they all um, conspiring to deceive you? Uh, and mm -hmm. inevitably, climate deniers go with the option too. Uh, they, they develop all these conspiracy theories on how and why scientists are uh, faking the data and trying to trick everybody, mm -hmm. you know, the whole global scientific community. And once you start uh, embracing those kind of thought patterns, then it, uh, it becomes easier to, to start believing that um, there are conspiracies in other areas as well. So we mm -hmm. see that all the mm -hmm. same people who have been denying climate change for years were some of the prominent voices who were also um, promoting conspiracy theories about COVID-19.
Mm -hmm. Do you think that there is a political asymmetry when it comes to the distribution of dangerous conspiratorial thinking? So like, for example, it seems to me that there's a lot more really like not to say there's no conspiratorial thinking on the left in America, but that the right is in a different universe of like dangerous conspiratorial spiral. And that part of that has to do with decades of denial of science on it, like you're saying, on a broad level that has made them sort of highly resistant to any information coming from um, experts. Do you feel like there is a political difference there? The general uh, principle is that um, people are more motivated to deny science when the findings of the science threaten their ideology. Uh, And Mm -hmm. so if there is a scientific finding that would threaten ideology on the left, then, then people are more motivated to reject it. So... In, in theory, uh, it should be symmetrical, but in practice, mm-hmm. we do see more science denial on the right. Um, and even cases where intuitively people assume that um, science denial was on the left, like with GMOs, in the survey data, it's actually, it's not, um, it, it's not a, it's a not a left thing. Like a GMO mm-hmm. science denial is, is kind of uh, equal on the left and the right. So I, I think that um, there is some evidence that, and I think that in general, um, people on the left are just as likely to mm-hmm. uh, be biased as people on the right. But in practice, what we find is that um, we do see more science denial on the right. Mm-hmm. Do you sort of buy the idea that like every individual is sort of at risk of conspiracism or maybe like the idea that slightly stronger claim that like everybody believes at least one thing that would require a conspiracy to be true? Or do you think that, you know, conversely that like certain individuals are at much higher risk because of certain specific risk factors? I mean, it's, it's all a matter of degrees. So Mm -hmm. like we all, distrust sources that, that disagree with us. Um, but, but distrust can, as we were saying before, like amongst a conspiracy theorist, a hardcore conspiracy theorist, that level of distrust is, is way higher than just the average baseline mm-hmm. amongst the general population. So, um, so, so yeah, I think that in, in principle, like everyone can t- to some degree be distrustful of sources. Um, mm-hmm. but, that doesn't make them a, a conspiracy theorist in the in the sense that we understand it. Uh, and sometimes, mm-hmm. like distrust of sources, can be a useful heuristic if if it is a known source of misinformation. And that's what my work is, is focused on: is how do we build public resilience against known misinformation sources? We can't be mm-hmm. trustful of everything because not everything is trustful. Mm-hmm. Related to this issue of like how many conspiracy theorists are there out there, you in the conspiracy handbook seem to suggest that like conspiracy theorists are generally small in number but large in influence. Now that was March of last year. I'm I'm wondering with things like numbers around QAnon, where I've had previous guests have suggested that like right wing conspiracy might number in the tens of million at this point. Um, what is your sense about the proportion of like the population currently caught up in various conspiracy spirals. To be honest, I haven't looked at the the 
the raw data on on like QAnon mm-hmm. followers and uh, like my I'm much more familiar with um, issues like climate change where where uh, they mm-hmm. they are in the single digit percentages and so well I mean that can still be millions of people but it's it's a, a small proportion of the public the mm-hmm. like regardless of whether it's like seven percent or twelve percent um, probably the the key feature is that um, they are a very vocal minority and therefore they are they tend to um, be perceived much bigger than they really are and that's exacerbated mm-hmm. by the fact that the media give them a lot of attention uh, we're seeing the same thing in Australia uh, with um, anti-vax protesters they get all the media attention you have you have an anti-vaccination protest in one of our capital cities and it's just all over the news and so that mm. gives the impression that they're a much bigger proportion of the public than they actually are like we are on track to hit um over 80 percent vaccinated maybe we'll get into the 90 percent vaccination in australia mm-hmm. which means that um vaccine hesitants are a very small proportion of the population yeah, they get mm, that so nice. much of the attention on the media. Yeah, I guess the problem is it seems like those numbers are higher over here. And so, like, I'm curious when you say single digits on climate change, you know, over here, it seems like amongst the right, amongst the GOP, effectively denialism about climate change is still fairly high. Um, and that, like, that that is very commonly and casually combined with distrust of the scientific sources. Now their language may be, you know, maybe this is happening, but we don't know X, Y, or Z. They've moderated their tone to some extent, but there still is sort of a fundamentally, it seems like, conspiratorial nature there. So I guess I'm wondering how you're distinguishing between, and this sort of gets to a broader question of like, is it getting harder to distinguish between conspiratorial and non-conspiratorial thinking? Like if a, if a majority of the GOP is, you know, skeptical in a substantial degree about climate change, does that not make them sort of teetering into conspiracy at that point? Uh, so the numbers in the US are uh, quite similar to Australia on climate change. The mm-hmm. percentage of Americans who are dismissive of climate change, again, is in the single digits. Um, so, uh, uh, but when you ask people how many, how what percentage of, of Americans would you think are uh, dismissive of climate change, are climate deniers, the people think it's much bigger than than eight percent or whatever it is, and that that figure, the dismissive figure, has been around ten percent um, for over a decade, and it's it's now shrinking. So now it's important that... to, yeah. Sorry, I just want to clarify about this because this is something that came up when I've taught environmental ethics. Is that number referring only to people who explicitly say climate change is not real full stop? Or is it including people who say are, you know, believe in climate change but are skeptical that it's anthropogenic or are skeptical that it is, you know, happening to a substantial degree, even though they think it may be happening to some extent? So uh, what I'm referring to is the Six Americas data, which is done by Yale and George Mason. Mm-hmm. What they do is they, they've, over the last decade and a bit, they've done these large national surveys where they um, ask people a lot of questions about climate change and then they break up people into uh, six mm-hmm. different ways mm-hmm. of thinking about climate change from alarmed and concerned all the way to, at the other end of the spectrum, you have doubtful and then dismissive. Uh, and even mm-hmm. the doubtful 
um, which is not not someone who's a hardcore denier and conspiracy theorist, but just unsure of it. Even if you include doubtful and dismissive, it's still uh, less than 20% of the population. But when you get to those hardcore conspiracy theorists in the dismissive group, that's uh, mm-hmm. around 8%. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're right in that. I, that does seem lower than I would expect it to be given experiences. But again, you're right, that could be there could be a variety of selection biases um, going into my experiences. So that is sort of comforting. I, I do still worry that um, things like QAnon are commanding and and sort of that MAGA, insofar as MAGA is a, a cluster of conspiratorial-like thinking around things like great replacement conspiracy theories, that those things still seem to have quite a bit of sway in like open right-wing politics in our country at this point. Yeah, I don't want to be a Pollyanna and say everything's great. That would surprise me. It would be very if you wanted to take that road, I would be very surprised. But you you do what you got to do. Yeah, I, I think uh, there's part of the problem is um, is what we're hearing from political leaders. So yeah. and I, and I think that. Um, like your perception and, and most people's perceptions is driven by the fact that from Republican leaders, we do hear a lot of skepticism about climate change. There was a, not that, like a, I don't know, sometime in the last half decade, there was a vote amongst the Senate on whether humans mm-hmm. are causing global warming. And it was essentially a 50-50. It was a, it was a party line vote on science. And the scientific question is, is human activities causing global warming? I mean, it seems mm-hmm. ridiculous to me that you would have politicians vote on that, but um, but mm-hmm. they did, and uh, and it reflected a partisan divide. But I think that was more um, a matter of political expediency rather than what they genuinely believe. But those things matter. Like that sends cues mm-hmm. to the public, and because humans are social animals, we follow uh, the cues from our tribal leaders. So if our political mm-hmm. leaders are sending the cue that global warming is not caused by human activity, that that has a dangerous uh, influence. Mm-hmm. Well, sp- speaking of influences, I'm curious what you buy, what you think of the sort of, there's one theory that conspiracism in general is increasing uh, or or has sort of become more significant or salient because of uh, the existence of real and highly reported on conspiracies and other sort of malfeasance amongst the powerful. Do you buy that like people's conspiracism is increased because of the actual existence and reporting on some actual conspiracies that have been revealed? Things like, you know, Watergate and such like that. I mean, I haven't really thought about that question, but my my immediate reaction is is no. I don't think that that has contributed to it. I think mm-hmm. that the the current rise in conspiracism um, is is probably more a function of a couple of just modern and recent uh, developments, such as A, the pandemic, B, um, the, mm-hmm. the pre- like the existence of social media platforms, which makes it easy for um, misinformation to be disseminated and see mm-hmm. this, this perfect storm of of different conspiratorial groups aligning and amplifying mm-hmm. each other. Uh, for example, QAnon, anti-vaxxers, 
and climate mm-hmm. denial um, and just general uh, anti-government or, or, um, or far-right um, movements are all uh, aligning and, um, and amplifying each other. And so I think mm-hmm. that it's a combination of those things which has led to it being such a prevalent problem at the moment. Mm, yeah, I think that, I think that's right. And there are these sort of confluences that are feeding each other and creating this kind of perfect storm of an epistemic crisis. Um, when the pandemic so me, came out, I had yeah. this incredibly laughably naive notion that that COVID nineteen could spell the end of anti vaxxers because, oh. like, my, my, <laughs> uh-huh. and I know it sounds funny for me to, you know, yeah, it wasn't deadly enough. I think is the answer there, right? What's that? It wasn't deadly enough. If 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 there had been a higher risk factor, I think you may you might have been right. But it's like on that level of like not quite dangerous enough. Even though like you know like outspoken anti-vaxxers keep you know publicly dying of COVID, um, it does seem like it it, it didn't it isn't like on a smallpox kind of level where everyone's going to sort of turn the other way and just line up and do the thing. Yeah, I mean, I mean, to me, six hundred thousand plus. Dead Americans seems pretty deadly to me, but um. Oh, I agree. But, I'm just saying, on a personal <laughs> level, they don't feel that it's enough of a risk for them. I think yeah. is the reality. Um, yeah, I know what you're saying. Um, mm-hmm. My my thinking at the beginning of the pandemic was that uh, because of of vaccination having you know basically uh, eradicating smallpox mm-hmm. or polio or, or these horrific diseases in the past. People weren't aware of just how horrible these diseases were, and mm-hmm. um, and that's that basically breeded complacency. And so, having an immediate disease threatening us would shake us of that complacency. Uh, and, and I guess you're right. I guess it, it needed to be even more horrific. Um, yeah, for them to possibly. Yeah. Or or there's other there's other possible explanations, right? It could be that like their their level of distrust of the institutions at this point is so strong that even if it had been more deadly, because they have narratives like Alex Jones, where you know the whole thing has been invented, right? There's no reason to trust the vaccine is not also part of the plan, right? So um, there'd be no reason to think that you know like they're that like a higher risk would break them out of that rather than cause them to double down on the conspiratorial thinking. Yeah. The environment is way, uh, mm-hmm. way more different now than, than in the past. Like I've heard mm-hmm. one um, person say that if we tried to mandate seatbelts now, it just would mm-hmm. never happen. Uh, and, and there was so, a lot of resistance to seatbelts back then too. But yeah, yeah I think you're uh, right. And so you can imagine the, the political kind of like screaming mm-hmm. that would, would occur if, if that was attempted now, it would be, how mm-hmm. dare you try to force us to, um, you know, it's my body, my choice in the car kind of thing. It's So mm-hmm. I, I think that we're in a different space now and anti-regulation has become this this um, a big talking point and it, it's used like a, a blunt instrument um, mm-hmm. across a, a range of different issues. Yeah, and I want to talk policy conclusions here in just a second, but let me, before we get out of the diagnostic phase here, there are a couple of like concrete edge case examples, one of which you've already mentioned that I'm curious to get your thoughts on. And I think we have to frame this carefully, right? So I'm talking about the lab leak hypothesis with regard to COVID. Um, I think 
you know, we don't want to say necessarily that the claim, the hypothesis that there was a leak is itself a conspiracy theory. But I'm curious what you would say about the claim that the heterodox approach to this particular issue, the way that it has been discussed by people who are skeptical of sort of the mainstream narrative is a kind has been a kind of conspiratorial thinking or approach. I mean, the the initial arguments um, were very conspiratorial in nature, mm-hmm. like, and they did fit the, the traits of conspiratorial thinking. There's a lab mm-hmm. in Wuhan, COVID started in Wuhan, um, reinterpreting randomness as a thought pattern would, would say, well, that can't be a coincidence. Uh, mm-hmm. And then, then flowing from that where you would start to get conspiracy theories about how it was all hidden and, and so on. Um, since then, it's kind of just, it's just bubbled along and you've had more mm-hmm. and more mainstream voices, at least not dismiss the idea. Um, but I'm not aware of any uh, convincing evidence um, mm-hmm. for the theory. So, do you think I, it's I, been? I, mm-hmm. Do you think it's been journalistic I'm, malpractice that, given that there appears to have been no sort of actual increase in the quality or quantity of the evidence for the hypothesis, the way that mainstream news sort of first talked about it in a dismissive way, but now has kind of come around to treating it as if it is, you know, something that needs to be sort of talked about as plausible or as sort of toyed around with it as like almost apologetic about the way that it was approached. Do you feel like that is the wrong way for journalists to go and that it ends up reinforcing the kind of conspiratorial thinking? It does seem to be driven by politics more than, than mm-hmm. any actual um, evidence or, or, you know, scientific approach. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, I think that that's unfortunate, but it seems like even, um, medical experts were were tiptoeing around the, the topic as well. Would you say there's much of any difference? So the other edge case that I was curious to ask you about is the conversations around ivermectin, which is, you know, the the reboot of uh, hydroxychloroquine. Do you feel like the way that, like the Weinsteins, for example, if you I don't know if you're familiar with them or various other folks like Rogan have, and Alex Jones have promoted ivermectin as an alternative to the vaccine is sort of steeped in like anti-pharma conspiracism in a, in a fairly straightforward way. Yeah, I mean, part of it, like it, it seems to me counterintuitive that they would resist vaccination because they don't like the idea of this this stuff going into our bodies and yet they are comfortable with putting ivermectin in their bodies. So mm-hmm. uh, I think that that counterintuitiveness stems from, again, that distrust of mainstream accounts and, mm-hmm. and that's really the danger of conspiratorial thinking. If you if you distrust institutions, scientists, experts, and main and mainstream institutions, then uh, it's it's like that, that John Mellencamp song. If you fall, for, what is it? Uh, if you don't stand for mm-hmm. something, you fall for anything. You fall for anything. So mm-hmm. I don't know if that's that song is is a, a good scientific um, source of information or anything, but. Um, <laughs> But yeah, it does seem like when once they go down that uh, distrust of the science, mm-hmm. then then they they have to glob onto something in order to gain mm-hmm. that level of control over the problem. Uh, and mm-hmm. so they they if, if you eliminate the science, you are left with um, 
uh, less reliable options. Okay. So yes, yeah, so let's talk about potential solutions or approaches, right? So in the conspiracy handbook, y'all, I think, pretty heavily emphasize the concern about empowerment. And this kind of sort of combines with the idea that one of the major risk factors for conspiracism is feel, a, a feeling of being disempowered. Um, now, I was actually recently reading um, Aranovich's Voodoo Histories, which is another great book about the history of conspiracism. And in his sort of later chapters, he has some theories and he seems a little bit more skeptical about disempowerment as a unifying feature. He sort of says, here's a list of conspiratorial thinkers, some of which are very rich and powerful. How can you say sort of that disempowerment is the the key sort of feature throughout all of them? Um, now, I'm more sympathetic to the idea that a perceived sense of disempowerment, which can you know, be something that even Donald Trump can experience, right, um, is a part of all of this. Um, but I'm curious if sort of in the past year, have you still are you still on the sort of view that like a lot of what we can be doing is helping people feel more em empowered as an intervention to sort of inoculate them against conspiracism i'm sympathetic with uh, your um interpretation because i think that even powerful people uh, can either either uh, feel disempowered or fear losing power uh, and mm -hmm. so you know, it's it's the classic like entitled person in a place of privilege. Mm -hmm. um, but but that said, I, I think again that the feeling of disempowerment is just one potential driver of conspiratorial mm -hmm. thinking. So there are a lot of people who do feel disempowered and and will be vulnerable to conspiracy theories. Uh, and there then there are other people who aren't as as um, vulnerable to them, or you know, not not as mm -hmm. in in such a disempowered state, but you know they may, they might be uh, driven by ideology or, or other factors. Mm -hmm. so, so, so just looking for a single magic bullet, I don't think is. It's a bit of a. It, it can oversimplify the problem. Sure, but, but like of course we have to like come up with interventions, and interventions tend to focus on you know a specific factor or something like that, or maybe you know maybe a couple of factors together, but like. You know, a question it seems that follows from this would be like, how do we actually help people feel more empowered in a way that reduces the risk here? If that is one of the contributing risk factors, especially because like there seems to be some data now that suggests that the you know the old myth of conspiracies being more prevalent amongst the poor may not be accurate. That there may be actually a higher prevalence of conspiracism amongst you know, sort of middle class individuals, or at least comparable or slightly higher. Um, so that sort of raises some doubts about the idea that like, we can just empower people economically, and that will rid us of conspiracism. Um, but it's also not clear what other kind of levers we have for empowering individuals, especially individuals who feel disempowered, because they're like very conservative worldview is being sort of left behind by social change. Do you have any sort of thoughts about like specific techniques that we can use to help assuage individuals in our lives who, are, who might be feeling disempowered and so trending in these directions? That, that's a tough one because just telling someone to feel empowered seems a bit um, <laughs> work. Insensitive, insensitive and trivial and shallow compared, you know, uh -huh. particularly if they are in a genuinely disempowered mm -hmm. state. Um, uh, uh, but I think... Um, 
more broadly, like a, a key principle of communication and, and developing these kind of interventions mm-hmm. is that audience matters. So uh, different interventions are appropriate for different audiences. So even if um, mm-hmm. even if there was a strategy to boost people's sense of empowerment or genuinely um, improve their their um, situation so that they're more empowered. Mm-hmm. That that's appropriate for one audience, but it's not a one size fits all. So I mm-hmm. think that um, you do need a suite of of different strategies, uh, and and this is a frustration I have working in communication research is often um, like arguments about what's the best strategy come down to this either or proposition mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. you need to have a more holistic approach that where often both communication approaches can can work, uh, complement mm-hmm. each other, or one is appropriate for one audience or context and another is appropriate in a different situation. Yeah, I'm sympathetic to that. I, I, I definitely take an all-hands-on-deck, all-tools-in-the-toolkit kind of approach to persuasion myself. One challenge I see with that in the sort of modern world is every almost all the communications that you have can be accessible by everyone and what you're describing could be mischaracterized by opponents as like talking differently to different people in a a sinister kind of way. So let me me bring this to a sort of concrete example. So um, in the handbook, y'all talk about mockery and there's a lot of debate about mockery as a technique for you know, dealing with conspiracism. And if I understood sort of the what what the what the data suggests is that mockery is not effective against someone who already believes in a conspiracy theory. Like using mockery about the conspiracy was is, you know, if not necessarily a blowback effect, is likely to make them less likely to listen to you or something like that. But there's some evidence that mockery works with general audiences, potentially, is the way I think it's put in um in your Um, handbook so i guess i'm curious though can i is there any way to like target your mockery in such a way where it isn't going to be shown to the people who you don't want to think you're mocking them and used as like see this is how they talk about you when you're not around right does that that make sense of the question yeah i mean that that doesn't sound like a an ideal approach like it's a Mm -hmm. bit sort of secretive and um I, I yeah I don't think that that's that's um, <laughs> a very viable communication strategy. Uh, so well, like so uh-huh. I guess um I mean satire which I guess is an, another mm-hmm. um, way of a, a more palatable word than mockery. Like satire is is used uh, in a mass media approach. Like so not mm-hmm. you know it, but but it tends to be consumed by audiences that are that are more conducive to it anyway. So like Colbert mm-hmm. will be will be mocking conspiracy theorists and you, you're probably going to have less conspiracy theorists tuning in to Colbert compared to people who are who are less conspiratorial and um, and and appreciate those, mm-hmm. you know, those kind of messages I I, more. I worry less about tuning in than an opponent seeing something, clipping it and sharing it on Twitter and making it go viral. So, so for example, on your website, you've, you've got a thing called crazy uncle versus climate change, or I guess I think it sounds like it should be more accurately called crazy father-in-law versus climate change. Um, how, right. How, yeah. Right. Um, the the publisher, cranky uncle. Yes. 
the publisher of the book wanted to suggest it. We call it Crazy Uncle, which I think uh -huh. is more of a, an American term. Um, right, and more of an ableist. But, but I, I was, yeah. I was mm -hmm. wary of that because it was, I, mean, I know this is getting into the weeds, but that mm -hmm. kind of pathologizes. Um, mm -hmm. Absolutely. Style, which is not, not where I wanted to go. No, and I'm, I'm sympathetic it, to that don't. sort of, yeah, not not sort of attaching it to mental illness. So I apologize that I, I said I used the wrong term there, um, but it does still feel like it is a a kind of a mocking, you know, a satirical app in this sense, right? You're training people, and, and like the goal is to train people to deal with misinformation, um, but you're sort of for fun, right? Putting it in the mouth of this sort of grumpy bad guy character in this way, and like. Um, you know, do you, I guess I would worry, um, you know, does that kind of mocking if, if someone, you know, shares it around and says, this is how they, you know, view people who are resistant to climate change, does that make you sort of less functional as a source for people who are trying to um, move people away from these ideas? I mean, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, and um, the Cranky Uncle game and the book is is not... Mm -hmm. Uh, the intent is not to change the minds of of people who are dismissive about climate change, um, which and that was a, that was a deliberate decision. Like I, I, I think you were talking about like earlier. We talked about different messages for different audiences. With mm -hmm. um, the approach of Cranky Uncle is uh, what we what researchers would call logic based inoculation. In other mm -hmm. words, explaining the techniques used to mislead. Um, and you can do that in a very dry, critical thinking kind of way. But we've mm -hmm. done a, a lot of research into using humor as a way to engage people. Uh, and it is satirical humor. So it's not going to be effective with the, with cranky mm -hmm. uncles. Mm -hmm. um, but but uh, where it is effective is with two different audiences in two different ways. Um, with mm -hmm. uh, with uh, people who are on board about climate change, people who are concerned or alarmed, the purpose of these kinds of inoculations is to basically give people um, the confidence to talk about climate change. Most people mm -hmm. who are concerned or alarmed don't actually talk about it because they're worried that they will get pushback from their cranky uncle. But mm -hmm. um, inoculating people against the arguments um, in climate misinformation gives them confidence to talk about it. So it's about mm -hmm. activating the concern. The other audience for the, for this type of humorous approach is the people who are disengaged or just not don't really have an, much of an opinion about climate change. And it's about using humor and cartoon and visuals um, as well as the critical thinking content in, in the cartoons to engage that group. Uh, and then mm -hmm. um, make them, uh, you know, move them into the the concerned about climate change group. So mm -hmm. those two groups, the the concerned about climate change and the undecided, make up more than ninety percent of the population. Uh, and, and so taking that approach uh, is, is designed to to reach most of the population. I, mm -hmm. I don't think it's possible to have a message that. Is, resonates with a hundred percent. I agree. Um, so I so I think that you're right. There is there is that uh, danger of that particular approach not being it's effective. Yeah. Yeah. 
it's yeah, interesting that, that you mm-hmm. it's interesting that you say the goal one of the goals is to make people sort of more comfortable talking about it do you feel like talking like you know me talking to my cranky uncle is actually doing anything useful or like is it more that these things are good because they inoculate the person from you know when someone tries to talk to me about this thing and they start throwing out a bunch of stuff that i've not heard of i won't be at like a risk of becoming befuddled and like you know maybe potentially being sympathetic to what they're saying even if i can't sort of disprove what they're saying in the moment that it's more like you know, we're not trying to encourage people to go out and talk to conspiracists. We're trying to protect people that when they get sort of jumped by a conspiracist, uh, that they aren't um, unprepared to sort of defend their their beliefs from all of the various tricks. The answer is yes, both. Um, okay. With inoculation, obviously the primary goal is to protect people, to build their resilience against being misled. But there's this interesting... Um, line of research within the inoculation um, literature, um, Mm -hmm. a phenomenon called post-inoculation talk. Uh, And what Mm -hmm. they've found is that when you inoculate people against, um, you know, misinformation or these these potential talking points that they might encounter, that does make them feel more empowered, come back to that word empower again, um, Mm -hmm. empowered to be able to talk about the issue because they feel like they can respond if they do get pushback. And Mm. at least in the issue of climate change, uh, climate silence or people not having conversations about climate change is a a big problem. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so empowering people to have those conversations is, is a key step. Great. So on a more like broader systemic levels, right? Do you, how do you feel that media should be trying to deal with conspiracism so for example should news and reporters be trying to engage with conspiracies you know you talked a little bit about that you like how to write a headline properly um but like in general should they is there a concern that like talking about this stuff much at all is just giving it oxygen i mean also like the questions like you know, is it a good thing that Alex Jones has been removed from Twitter and should we be more aggressively moderating conspiratorial behavior on social media? A um, couple of questions there. And if I, yeah. if I forget some of them by the time I've answered mm-hmm. the other one, just no remind problem. me again. But, mm-hmm. uh, generally speaking, I think that, um, and, and as a very general rule, I think that if the, the media can internalize some of the findings from from psychological research, that would mm-hmm. um, that would be a good step. Uh, and some, and for example, some of the findings that that we outline, not in the conspiracy theory handbook so much, but in the debunking handbook, we've done a lot of handbooks. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Like we talk about how do you address misinformation, and, and the principles there, I think, are similar to the principles in addressing conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. Uh, firstly, you do need to be selective in what you do address because you don't want to elevate misinformation or conspiracy theories that are on the fringe by mm-hmm. bringing them into the mainstream. So this is something that that I wrestle with when deciding whether to debunk something. Um, mm-hmm. will, will I be elevating it by doing it? Like, And so the general rule I, I, I use is if I'm punching down, then I the answer tends to be no. But if I'm punching up, then the answer is mm-hmm. tends to be yes. 
that's that's my general rule of thumb on whether to address misinformation or conspiracy theory. Um, I recently said the exact same thing in an article about this, actually. That's funny. Uh, yes. And so that? then as it's funny, I recently said the exact same thing in an article about epistemic poverty tourism, the concern that like people can get into a place of punching down towards conspiratorial thinkers as people who like are deserving of ridicule or something like that. Um, and it can become, you know, what, what might've started out as functional reporting on someone like Alex Jones can turn into sort of a, a sideshow um, carnival barker situation. Yeah. And I don't think that's constructive. If mm -hmm. you do decide to, um, engage with misinformation then then how you do that is important too mm -hmm. uh, and the in in general that the two main principles when addressing misinformation or conspiracy theories is a put the emphasis on the the key core facts that you want to communicate rather than the myth and b uh, explain the techniques used to mislead people uh, in other mm -hmm. words what are the techniques that the myth uses to distort the facts. Uh, and so what that does is it helps people to make sense of, of the fact that you have these conflicting pieces of information. There's a fact and there's a myth. How do people know which is true and which isn't? If you explain mm -hmm. the facts and then you explain how the myth distorts the facts, that enables people to kind of synthesize all this mess and make mm -hmm. sense of it all. Uh, and so I think generally explaining how misinformation misleads or explaining the traits of conspiratorial thinking it gives people the critical thinking tools not only to make sense of that particular topic but also more generally they can then spot those same techniques in other areas mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that makes sense so what about the issue of um, content moderation. So, you know, like some people will argue if you ban people like Alex Jones, it'll make them more powerful or something. I think there's pretty good evidence that it makes them less powerful and that it's very much the right thing to do. So I'm curious, do you, are you sympathetic with sort of pulling the trigger on banning certain individuals who are promoting particularly harmful conspiracy theories? I'm pro-ban. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that, um, social media platforms that allow misinformation to flow through them, mm -hmm. uh, handing a megaphone to science deniers, conspiracy theorists, and misinformers, and that has a toxic influence on society. So, mm -hmm. um, but I think there are a variety of tools, and like it doesn't have to be a blanket ban necessarily, necessarily mm -hmm. but uh, I think that um, social media platforms should be either flagging misinformation or mm -hmm. um, or having it so that it's not shown to as many people or taking it down or banning users. These are like all actions along the spectrum and mm -hmm. they can move along the spectrum depending on how, how um, either serious the misinformation is or how serial the misinformer is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm, I'm sympathetic to that as well. Um, so before we run out of time here, there's one or two other things I want to get to real quick. Um, there's all, this is I guess more of like a concern on the left, politically speaking, I would say. But one of the um, arguments that some folks have raised that there's a relationship between views like postmodernism with its criticism of authority and epistemic authority and like standpoint epistemology and conspiracism. So, for example, um, in that same book, uh, Aronovich 
suggests in the example of Spike Lee talking about the New Orleans levees being bombed during Katrina, that this is sort of an example of what happens when you go too far with sort of privileging everybody's narrative or something like that. Do you feel like you've seen some evidence of concern around that being one of the factors that is driving our kind of post-truth environment? I haven't even heard of that sparkly conspiracy theory. <laughs> to be oh honest. yeah. But um, uh-huh. wow. Bombing the levees. Is that to do with the, um, the hurricane? To murder all the black people in the, in the oh, places God, that got terrible. flooded. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I'm not quite sure what to make of that. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. I, I haven't, I guess I haven't really, yeah. I don't think I can have given that issue as enough thought to give a really, Mm-hmm. Um, reasoned answer i might pass on it fair enough it's something i'm sympathetic to in the sense that even though i'm pro sort of postmodernism standpoint epistemology i also think that like one of the major contributors to our current epistemic crisis is like a lot of debates around you know multiple ways of knowing and um, that can show up, you know, in religious areas, it can show up in secular areas, um, but that like there's a lot, there's almost, I think, too much emphasis on the like cognitive biases and lack of logic or just disinterest towards knowledge. And maybe there could be more emphasis on, um, you know, the fact that people feel like they're dealing with entirely different epistemologies from other people in some situations. Yeah, this... Yeah, this is a tough one. Um, yeah. As a scientist, I I uh, obviously prioritize empirical science, mm-hmm. um, but but I'm working through um, the fact that there are you know cultures that have different epistemologies, and so um, it's it's a tough one. Okay, fair enough. Um, so last thing before we get to the enlightening round, are there other resources besides obviously your book and handbooks and whatnot um, that you would recommend for folks who want to engage on these issues more? Well, I guess, um, yeah, I, I guess the, the handbooks that we design are, are meant to be a portal to to all the research, the empirical mm-hmm. research, the primary research published on these topics. So I would point people to uh, either the debunking handbook or the conspiracy theory handbook. We've also done the consensus handbook, which mm-hmm. is um, it's 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 really climate focused. So I, I apologize that I, as a climate communication researcher, I tend to be a bit myopic there. But mm-hmm. uh, the general principles there are about the psychology of consensus, communicating consensus, how misinformation tries to cast doubt on it, and how journalists um, can cover issues where there is a scientific consensus, but there is also dissent, how they can mm-hmm. navigate that um, tension between providing equal weight to both sides of a debate while also avoiding misleading the public. So mm-hmm. um, so there's a, those handbooks are very brief, concise and visual, but also um, it's all based on primary research. So they're, they're very good starting points for someone who wants to uh, get their feet wet, but then can dive in further, deeper if they want. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Let me, I just came to mind since you were talking. Um, I'm curious if your experience at all over there in Australia has been that like 
the flavor of conspiracism is that, that you all are dealing with is being sort of influenced by American culture war stuff that we are kind of exporting our particularly virulent forms of conspiracism in a way? Or do you feel like it's sort of substantially different culture to culture? What kind of um, epistemic crises people are dealing with? Having just lived in the US for four years from 2017 mm -hmm. to 2021, uh, and mm -hmm. then moving back to Australia, it's struck me how similar the um, the arguments that I'm hearing in Australia are to what I was hearing mm -hmm. in the US. So mm -hmm. I think definitely yes to exporting those those types of um, yeah I think culture war type arguments. The like we we there's even people at the anti vaccine protest in Melbourne. Um, mm -hmm carrying trump signs <laughs> so mm, that's gives, not you, a good gives sign. you a sense of, of how um how effective the exporting has been do you feel like um australia is particularly susceptible to sort of american culture war because i mean like my sense is y'all are sort of less keyed up to have a debate about stuff like wokeness but there are some sort of entry points in the kind of bloke worldview for some of this stuff it seems yeah your sense is is accurate um mm -hmm. the way i characterize it is america is is this very similar to australia but with the volume turned up mm -hmm. um, and and that's reflected in the data i collected during my phd i would run experiments the exact same experimental design in the us and in australia and what I would find in um, Australia was this polarization um, on climate change across the political spectrum so that conservatives were less accepting of climate change than liberals. Mm -hmm. In the US, mm -hmm. I saw the same pattern, but it was much more intense. Interesting. Do you also, I'm sorry, I keep saying, I keep saying we're going to wrap up, but I keep thinking of more things that I, I want to desperately ask you about. As a factor, as a risk factor, some people have pointed to religiosity and more sort of more religious individuals because of correlations between religious narrative worldviews and conspiratorial narrative worldviews, um, that that and other kinds of things might prime religious individuals to be more prone to conspiratorial thinking are you sympathetic to that or do you think that um it's not an especially salient risk factor uh i i think that that is one factor and the other factor is the overlap between religiosity and political ideology like which mm -hmm. is particularly the case with evangelicals uh mm -hmm. in the us and australia um but but yes yeah, certainly i think that there is a thought pattern of distrust in science uh, amongst mm -hmm. um, amongst religious people who perceive the science as threatening their ideology. And it comes back to that general principle I mentioned much earlier. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and it, it's a shame because there are millions of, of Christians who, who don't see, for example, the science of evolution as a threat to their faith. Uh, mm -hmm. And yet there are also millions of Christians who do, and that mm -hmm. leads them to be distrustful of the science and and then you have those those thought patterns of distrust, um, which can then spill over into other topics. 
Okay. Fair enough. Great. So I, obviously I could keep asking you things forever, but um, I, I want to respect <laughs> your time and I have to torture you a little bit here first. Um, so we always wrap things up with the enlightening round. Enlightenment comes from within. So what's going to happen here, folks who are not familiar, I'm going to give you a list of things. You are going to tell me, are these things real or not real? Those are the only answers you can give. There's no hedging. You don't get to define what real means. It is a lightning round, just real or not real. Do you understand? Well, oh, I do. And now I'm a little bit terrified. Um, I've, Good. Um, All right. I tend to not perform well in these kind of things, which is embarrassing for someone who's supposedly an expert. No, absolutely. The, the more embarrassing, the better. That's this all live theater. So um, let me right get get a sense of things here first. Is anything real? Yes. Okay, great. Let's find out what is real and not real. So the external world, real or not real? Real. Colors, real or not real? Okay, that's an interesting one. Because uh, uh, no, I want to go into a long... No, 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 no. That's why this is torture. Real or not real? Real. Okay. Phenomenal consciousness. Um, can you just sort of explain uh, your, your inner world of experience that you have an inner world of experience? Real. Okay. Free will. I, I mean, yeah. Again, this the whole non-qualifying thing is a bit torturous, yeah. but go on. Yeah, yeah. Free will. I, I don't. <laughs> I'm. I'm going to go. Not real. Okay. Selves or persons. I mean, I I, I want to question the whole. This whole exercise. Yeah, there's no, there's no questioning in the middle. Kind of you just have to get through it first. things in the binaries that are sort of on a spectrum or, or, or yep. defy. The important so, thing is that the stakes are very low, so it's okay. Whatever I also get very philosophical just... during exam periods. On is this really? <laughs> All know, right, how... come on, come on. We got to get through these. <laughs> Selves or persons? The, the people need their data. Okay, so so self is self okay. real. Mm -hmm. Um. I mean, God, I need to. I need to spend the whole day thinking about. The question, <laughs> Come on, man. lightning! Uh, Emphasis I, on the enlightening. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna go with. This is kind of a flip of a coin. I'm gonna go with real. Okay, gender. I think I'm contradicting myself now on my earlier answers. Everybody does. That's okay. Genders. Genders. Oh, real God, or not now, real? Now you're putting me into it. Um. I mean, again, like. For no, some people, just, real. Just, just, other real, people just real. real or not real. Ah, <laughs> uh, see, this is stick, not Stick fair. to the game. Nope, this is how it works. Everybody everybody else before you has suffered through this. You can do it too. Are you going to go with Schrodinger's cat? Is that in there as well? I mean... Nope. Nope. <laughs> Gender. This is kind of a... Well, real with some heavy qualifiers. That's fine. Real, real is fine. Real will do. Races, real or not real? Real. Okay. Species, real or not real? Real. Morality. Real. <laughs> rights. Are rights real? I mean. <laughs> yeah, real. Knowledge. 
Real. God or gods? Not real. Society? Real. Money? Real. Numbers? <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know how to answer that one because... But this, I, I guess only this got is two options. A lot of different things. I'm going to go with real, but okay. But then again, uh, no, yeah, whatever. That's yeah, fine. Fictional on. characters. Fictional characters. Well, I mean, <laughs> you'd be surprised. Not real. There we go. Holes like a hole in the ground. <laughs> so he's an absence of thing. Real. Um, yes. Well, I mean, falling into a hole has a real okay. impact, so I'm going to go with All real. Right. Chairs. Real. Sandwiches. I feel like I'm being trapped. Yeah, this is a, you're leading me down somewhere. Yeah. What's the next one? Sandwiches. Real. Science. I mean, this is the same as knowledge, so I guess I'll have to say real. That's the oh, that's an interesting take. Natural laws. In the sense that natural laws describe a real thing, they're real. You 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 are free to interpret the term as you personally see it. <laughs> Sorry, did you say the next one? Did I miss it? Oh no, I just was making sure that you said natural see so that natural laws are real. Uh yeah, uh real. Okay. Okay, great. Beauty. You're so close. I mean, it's it's in the eye of the beholder, but does that make it <laughs> really not real? I, I I'm gonna go with real, but I, I'm now I'm just not sure what I'm what even real and <laughs> real means. Good, good. That's the whole point. Uh, love, love, real. Well, it's a chemical reaction, so it's real. Causality. Real. And finally. But, um, but, but nope, often. Nope. There's no but. There's no but. <laughs> finally, time. Real. Okay. You I survived. actually did a physics degree, but I, I never really understood <laughs> all the really uh -huh. hard How do you stuff. feel? Have you survived? Are you okay? Yeah, it's uh, it's having me questioning everything now. So good, good. That's the whole point. That's the fun of the game. Um, so I hope you don't feel too mad at me for doing that to you. <laughs> I should have. If it makes you feel any better. The audience loves it when you when people have this much trouble. So it's a good show. <laughs> Everybody loves a good show. Yeah, I, I I mean I can sympathize. Like one thing I love doing is when I give guest lectures um to mm -hmm. like college classes um we, about critical thinking i mm -hmm. i encourage the professor to do a role-playing exercise with me where i play the cranky uncle and they try to convince me of climate change mm -hmm. and and it's really i enjoy the look of terror in the professor's eyes when they, <laughs> As it goes they think about <laughs> the prospect of being humiliated in front of their class uh-huh um, uh-huh that's and, funny and so being at the other end of that um, 
yeah, I can see how other people mm-hmm. would enjoy it. Well, well, good news is the stakes are very low. The odds of you being canceled for any of your answers are fairly low. So <laughs> don't worry too much about it. Um, so, John, this has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate you taking the time. Do you want to let folks know where they can find you on things like the social medias and whatnot? Yeah, well, I guess um, skepticalscience.com is if you're interested in climate change mm-hmm. and climate misinformation uh, or critical thinking more generally, crankyuncle.com. And cranky uncles are welcome, um, even if the, the website wasn't really designed for them. Mm-hmm. And you're on Twitter as well, I believe, right? Yeah. Um, oh, what is my account? I think it's at John <laughs> F.O. Cook. Great. John all Cook's right. Well, a common so name, so I had to use all the middle initials. Yeah. Is that a, is that a historically referential name of some sort? <laughs> John Cook. No, it's just a very boring, plain name, and there's a mm. lot of people who have it. I see. Fair enough. Um, All right. Well, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Great to talk to you. Thanks. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. Thanks to our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. Thanks to our newest patron, Tarn Somerville Fletcher. Thanks, as always, to our top-tier rogue of villains patrons, our Archon-level patrons, Lawrence Shielding Dude, Fix the Vote, uh, need more Camus and other Fossil Vega driving philosophers. Ooh, sorry, the Freedom Menu was only till 11 a.m. And Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman. And all the thanks to our Archduke-level patrons, Big Easy Blasphemy, Creepy Little Void Eyes, and Dave Maslich. If you'd like to support the show, please check out my other show, Philosophers in Space. And while you're at it, check out our wonderful editor, Louisa Lyons, filmed live musicals podcast, Leave them all a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. You can also follow me on Twitter at ETVPod. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to our episodes and our bonus ETV reading group content. Most of all, till the stars turn cold, you are the void and the void is you. (laughs) 